Prison Radio on CQT 90.3 FM in Montreal and on www.cqt.ca on the World Wide Web. News, interviews, and music featuring the voices of prisoners, their allies, and supporters. Tune in to the Prison Radio Show on the fourth Friday of every month between 11 a.m. and noon or on the second Thursday of every month between 5 and 6 p.m. To get involved in Prison Radio or finding help searching for past programs, email prison at cqt.ca. Prison Radio Show. My name is Yasmin, and I'll be one of your hosts for today. We'll be featuring an interview with Yusuf Fakiri, the brother of Suleiman Fakiri, and one of the founders of the Justice Rosali movement. Suleiman Fakiri, who suffered from schizophrenia, died on December 15, 2016, at the Central East Detention Center, a provincial facility in Lindsay, Ontario, after 20 to 30 guards pepper sprayed him and beat him. But first, we have some news and updates on the prison hunger strike that started a few days ago and what could potentially become the largest prison strike in the history of the United States and even Canada. In The Guardian on Thursday, August 23, 2018, major prison strikes spread across U.S. and Canada as inmates refuse food. 
Prisoners stand against forced labor and other indignities amid reports of action in California, Washington State, and Nova Scotia. A prison strike has begun to take hold in custodial institutions across North America, with reports of sporadic protest action from California and Washington State to the eastern seaboard as far south as Florida and up to Nova Scotia in Canada. Details remain sketchy as information dribbles out through the porous walls of the country's penitentiaries. Prison reform advocacy groups liaison with strike organizers said Wednesday that protests had been confirmed in three states, with further unconfirmed reports emerging from Florida, Georgia, South California, and North California. The confirmed cases related to a hunger strike in Folsom Prison in California. A 26-year-old inmate named Herberto Garcia managed to dispatch to the outside world a smartphone recording of himself refusing food. The video was then posted on Twitter. When he was told the contents of the meal, Garcia could be heard, be heard replying, Burritos are not, not eaten today. Protest, I'm on hunger striking right now. The second confirmed action was in Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, where as many as 200 detained immigrants joined the nationwide protest. The Canadian arrest occurred in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where prisoners at Burnside Jail put out a statement in solidarity with their striking U.S. equivalents, complaining that they were being warehoused as inmates, not treated as human beings. The 19-day strike is the first such nationwide action in the U.S. in two years, and was triggered by April's rioting in Lee Correctional Institution in South California, in which seven inmates were killed. The start of the strike on Monday was symbolically timed to mark the 47th anniversary of the death of the Black Panther leader, George Jackson, in San Quentin Prison in California. One of the intentions of the organizers of the current dispute is to bring to public attention the spat of deaths in custody, which in some states has reached an epidemic portions. In Mississippi, 10 inmates have died in their cells in the past three weeks alone, with no firm indication of their causes of death. In addition to the loss of life, the strikers, led by a network of incarcerated activists who call themselves jailhouse lawyers speak, have put out a set of 10 demands to overhaul America's creaking penal system. High up on the list is an end to forced or underpaid labor that protesters call a form of modern slavery. Kevin Rashid Johnson, who is serving a life sentence in Sussex State Prison in Waverly, Virginia, writes in The Guardian that he sees prison work as slave labor that still exists in the United States in 2018. In fact, slavery never ended in this country. On August 22, 2018, the prison media strike team that includes Amon Sawari, the official outside media representative of Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, Jared Ware, the freelance journalist covering prisoner movements, and Brooke Terpstra of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, National Media Committee, released this strike statement to the press regarding the ongoing nationwide prison strike on incarceratedworkers.org. So the prison strike has been underway for more than 24 hours now. In the first day, we got word of the actions coming out of the prisons from Halifax, Nova Scotia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, Folsom Prison, and Folsom Prison in California reported strike action. We saw outside solidarity actions in at least 21 cities around the U.S. and as far as, uh, as, far, as far abroad as Leipzig, Germany. We saw Palestinian political prisoners give a statement of solidarity from their prisons in occupied Palestine. We called this conference 
call because those of us who have been coordinating media relations on the outside have been overwhelmed by the number of reporters and outlets who are covering the strike. For some of us who were involved with media relations in 2016, we can say that the difference is dramatic, and we thank you for your interest in this prisoner-led movement. Many of you have the same questions, and so we want to give you all an opportunity to hear our responses in one place. We want to note that although there aren't widespread reports of actions coming out of prisons, that people need to understand that the tactics being used in this strike are not always visible. Prisoners are boycotting um, commissaries. They are engaging in hunger strikes, which can take days for the state to acknowledge, and they will be engaging in sit-ins and work strikes, which are not always reported to the outside. As we saw in 2016, the Department of Corrections are not reliable sources of information for these actions and will deny them and seek to repress those who are engaged in them. We have spoken with family members who have suggested that cell phone lines may be jammed at multiple prisons in South Carolina. New Mexico had a statewide lockdown yesterday. The Department of Corrections in this country are working overtime to try and prevent strike action and to try and prevent word from getting out about actions that are taking place. As you report this strike, we encourage you to uplift the actions that we do not know about, but also acknowledge that strikers may be resisting in ways that are tougher to quantify and view. We encourage outlets to issue FOIA requests to prisons that we believe will show attempts to quell the strike and also evidence of boycotts and other strike activity. We also really want to remind the strike the media, that this strike is about 10 different demands, while prison slavery has become a galvanizing force in the public eye, and it is a key element that the prisoners are protesting against. They have given you 10 specific demands, and it is important to talk about all of them or report on them individually. People need to understand how truth and sentencing laws function, how gang enhancement laws function, and how the Prison Litigation Reform Act works and why these uh, are the things that prisoners are targeting their protest around. We need to be talking about the lack of rehabilitation programs, mental health care, and the lack of education programs and how this is, undermines the ostensibly rehabilitative nature of the prison system itself. Prisoners crafted these demands carefully through national organizing based on the circumstances of the lead prison violence that occurred earlier this year in an understanding of how the state brings about the conditions of violence like that and the types of changes that are necessary to prevent that sort of violence from recurring. This is a human rights campaign and each of these demands should be understood through this human rights lens. Press release, National Prisoner Strike, August 21st to September 9th, 2018. Men and women incarcerated in prisons across the nation declare a nationwide strike in response to the riot in Lee Correctional Institution, a maximum security prison in South Carolina. Seven comrades lost their lives during a senseless uprising that could have been avoided had the prison not been so overcrowded from the greed wrought by mass incarnation and lack of respect for human life that is embedded in our nation's penal ideology. These men and women are demanding humane living conditions, access to rehabilitation, sentencing reform, and the end of modern-day slavery. These are the national demands of men and women in federal, immigration, and state prisons. One, immediate improvements to the conditions of prisons and prison policies that recognize the humanity of imprisoned men and women. Two, an immediate end to prison slavery. All persons in prison in any place of detention under the United States jurisdiction must be paid the prevailing wage of their, in their state or territory for their labor. Three, the Prison Litigation Reform Act must be rescinded, allowing imprisoned humans a proper channel to address grievances and violation of their rights. Four, the Truth and Sentencing Act and the Sentencing Reform Act must be rescinded so that imprisoned humans have the possibility of rehabilitation and parole. No human shall be sentenced to death by incarnation or serve any sentence without the possibility of parole. 
an immediate end to the racial number five, an immediate end to the racial overcharge and oversentencing and parole denials of black and brown humans. Black humans shall no longer be denied parole because the victim of the crime was white, which is a particular problem in southern states. Six, an immediate end to racist gang enhancement laws targeting black and brown humans. Seven, no imprisoned humans shall be denied access to rehabilitation programs at their place of detention because of, of their label as a violent offender. Eight, state prisons must be funded specifically to offer more rehabilitation services. Pell, uh, Pell grants must be re- reinstated in all U.S. states and territories. Nine, the voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees, and so-called ex-felons must be counted. Representation is demanded. All voices count. We all agree to spread this strike throughout the prisons of America. From August 21st to September 9th, 2018, men and women in prisons across the nation will strike in the following manner. One, work strikes. Prisoners will not report to assigned jobs. Each place of detention will determine how long its strike will last. Some of these strikes may translate into a local list of demands designed to improve conditions and reduce harm within the prison. Two, sit-ins. In certain prisons, men and women will engage in peaceful sit-in protests. Three, boycotts. All spending should be halted. We ask those outside the walls not to make financial judgments for those inside. Men and women on the inside will inform you if they are participating in this boycott. We support the call of Free Alabama Movement Campaign to redistribute the pain 2018 as Benu Hannibal Rawson, formerly known as Melvin Ray, has laid out, with the exception of refusing visitation. See these principles described here. Four, hunger strikes. Men and women shall refuse to eat. How you can help. Make the nation look at our demands. Demand action on our demands by contacting your local, state, and federal political representatives with these demands. Ask them where they stand. Spread the strike and word of the strike in every place of detention. Contact a supporting local organization to see how you you can be supportive. If you are unsure of who to contact with, email millionsforprisonersmarch at gmail.com. Be prepared by making contact with people in prison, family members of prisoners, and prison support organizations in your state to assist in notifying the public and media on strike conditions. Assist in our announced initiatives to have the votes of people in jail and prisons counted in elections. For the media, inquiries should be directed to prisonstrikemedia at gmail.com. The time is presently 11.15. You're listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and www.ckut.ca. Next up, we have an interview with Yusuf Fakiri, the brother of Solomon Fakiri and the founder of the Justice for Sali movement. Solomon Fakiri, who had schizophrenia, died after guards at, at a provincial facility in Ontario pepper sprayed him and beat him after he refused to get out of the shower, according to a 2017 internal report by the Kawartha Lakes Police Service that refers to surveillance uh, video. In the hours before he died in, seg- in a segregation cell um, in Lindsay, Ontario, in prison, 20 to 30 officers were involved in subduing him, despite that he had schizophrenia. They pepper sprayed him twice, covered his face with a spit hood, and held his body down with leg irons. In the report, there's a lot of details about how the officers forcefully handcuffed him and um, 
placed leg shackles on him as they returned him to his segregation segregation cell. And then the video shows 20 to 30 officers entering his cell. Um, now we will resume um, the interview with Yusuf Fakiri, the brother of, of Solomon Fakiri. Yusuf, can you tell our listeners why you have taken the time to do this interview with Prison Radio Show today? There, there are so many reasons that I can give as to why I wanted to talk about Suleiman's story, but I just want to say a couple of things for the audience. One, it's a story that or everyone has a stake in, and that stake is that this could have happened to another family, and we want to let Suleiman's story to be told so this does not happen to someone else, and that's very important for my family. And secondly, Solomon's story we want to tell because we loved him. He was an important member of our family, and we miss him dearly. And those are the two main reasons, but I can talk more. But like I said, we want to tell this story because people with mental illness deserve to be respected with dignity. They, they are human beings like everyone else, and we want to tell my brother's story so it's not forgotten. He should have never been killed and never been never treated the way that he was treated. Can you tell us about Solomon? What was he like, and what was your relationship with Solomon like? What were his relationships with your family members like? You know, Solomon, there's so many things to say about Suleiman, but my own relationship with him was, although I was the oldest brother, he was uh, second of five. It was me more often than not that looked up to him um, in the sense that Solomon, throughout his adversity, through, through his entire difficulty with this illness, he was he, he was a man with so much strength in the sense that he was he would always do everything with what he had for people around him, for the less fortunate. And, and that's something that, uh, you know, that should never be forgotten. But there's other things about Solomon's character. Um, you know, a lot of people often ask me, what, uh, what do you remember most about Solomon or, you know, what stands out? The things that, you, that stand out with Suleiman is his brilliance uh, more than anything in the sense that Solomon, prior to his illness, uh, was studying engineering at the University of Waterloo's engineering program. He was in high school. He played both rugby and football. He was a straight-A student. And even after his illness, Solomon was able to pick up a third language. In addition to his native tongue of Farsi and then English, he ended up picking up Arabic. This was after his illness. So he's always known for his brilliance. The other thing that stands up for Solomon's character is that he was a man that was always devoted to his family. He would do anything for us, whether it be myself or my sister or my other brothers or his two nephews, two nieces. He loved he loved them dearly, loved us dearly, and, and he had a special relationship with each and one of us. I often say that he was my mom's best friend. He was my mom's teacher. He was a mentor to my youngest brother. He was more than larger-than-life uncle to his nephews and nieces. And so that personal relationship between myself and him was quite close. We were uh, the closest in age out of all the kids. So there's a lot I learned from him, and I miss that enormously. When was Solomon diagnosed with schizophrenia? I know that he suffered injuries from a car accident prior to his diagnosis. Do you think the trauma from the car accident was a catalyst in the onset or diagnosis in Solomon's case? So I'm not I'm not a I'm not a medical professional, but here's what I what I can say is that uh, from my understanding, so Solomon was diagnosed uh, with schizophrenia um, um, during his first year at university in his second semester in the spring of 2005, and um, in, in and it was after a car accident he was diagnosed with this illness. My understanding with schizophrenia, um, as I understand it, is usually uh, 
individuals that are diagnosed with this illness, um, uh, an event that happens that triggers the illness. And I would, I, and I'm under, um, as I understand it, that it was this, this car accident that triggered this illness. Um, the Suleiman was diagnosed with schizophrenia shortly, uh, shortly after this illness, uh, is this accident. And when was that? This was in the spring 2005, during his second semester in his first year, uh, when he was studying at the University of Waterloo. And what was he studying at Waterloo? Environmental engineering. Oh, wow. And how, how was it for him, like, prior to the accident? And then, like, did you notice a huge difference after? Was he able to go back to school? You know, although life's trajectory would, tra- would forever change after his diagnosis with schizophrenia, but the man that he was, the character that he was, and, I, and I, this is very important for the audience, if they're able to, if they take anything from this interview, for the audience to remember this, schizophrenia is one aspect of an individual, and mental illness is one aspect. It does not define your character. And this is very important. So the man, he suffered from schizophrenia, and it's not a... It's a very difficult illness, but this illness did not uh, did not change him as a person. Rather, this illness made us appreciate uh, the importance of mental illness as a result of what happened to Suleiman. He was more of he was a gift to us. Yes, he did not finish his education at University of Waterloo, but something even more profound happened um, after Suleiman's illness, and that was we ourselves as a family got closer to our faith as a result of this. This illness, it was, and Solomon was the catalyst, and he's the one that taught us uh, so many things about our, our own faith. And, and that's something that uh, we owe that to Suleiman. And, but one thing to keep in mind, just to give you an example, even though he didn't finish education, he did still continue his studies in, in a different capacity. He ended up picking up uh, the Arabic language, which is one of the hardest languages in the world, after his diagnosis of schizophrenia. Oh, wow, that was after. That's incredible. Yes, that was after. And as I understand, he, he was very learned in Islam. Yes, he. Um, I always say to people, um, in terms of um, him being my mom, he, 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 taught, he taught my mom how to read the Quran, which is the, uh, the book for, for Muslims. Um, and he taught her how to read in Arabic. He taught me how to uh, pray. Wow. It was him. That's incredible. And was that after his accident or before? This was after his accident. Wow, that's quite remarkable that despite, you know, other challenges that he was going through, that he was able to pick up something new and be able to teach it to other people. That's Absolutely. And he was, as I said, his life's trajectory would forever change, but his relationships with individuals remain steadfast. His close links with his family, whether it was myself and my other brothers or my sister, my nephews and nieces, or my mother, they would remain uh, firm and they would become even more stronger after his illness. That's, that's amazing. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with our listeners. I know that's also um, quite personal, so I really appreciate that. And you did mention that his life changed after the diagnosis. Like, how did it change? And what are some of the challenges that Suleiman faced um, that other individuals struggling with schizophrenia or other mental illnesses undergo? You know, schizophrenia is um, is an extremely um, is an illness that can affect folks quite a bit. And you know, one of the common um, uh, symptoms of schizophrenia is uh, individuals they tend to um, you know. Uh, um, some of the stuff that happens, they don't sleep that all. Like uh, it affects their sleep, mm-hmm. and um, and that's something that affects folks across the line when it comes to schizophrenia. But but with respect to the illness, uh, you know, um, the illness was there, 
but the illness never defined him. Rather, he 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 was able to define the illness itself in terms of his character. And that was a remark. That was that was an attestment to Suleiman's strength. Right. Um, and um, through witnessing uh, his struggle and learning how to support someone um, with mental illness, um, like how did this alter your understanding of mental illness? Well, you know, just right on the outset, it gave us um, it gave us the the opportunity of empathy, right? You know, although we never, you could never really understand when someone's going through, um, someone who's suffering from mental illness, um, what they're going through, but it, it gives you, as a, as the family, it gives you a, an immense opportunity um, into um, under, trying to understand, at least in a limited way, of uh, what this illness is about. And it, it gave us a better understanding. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this. At the time of Suleiman's death, when he was 30 years old, like I said, he was diagnosed when he was in the spring 2005, which made him 19 years old. He, he was killed in, when he was 30. In those 11 years, what kept Suleiman alive was my family's unflinching love and always being there for him. It took 11 years, we were, you know, and that's what kept him alive. But it took 11 days to take his life un, uh, uh, at a facility that was under government care. It took us 11 years to keep him alive and, and it was loving him um, unflinchingly, un, you know, immensely and always being there. While it took 11 days under government care for him, for his life to be taken away. Wow, that's quite remarkable. Like you said, 11 years of care and support. What did that consist of or what did that look like in the day-to-day? You know, uh, Yasmin, it's, 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 it's so basic, yet it's so profound, you know, in terms of what that love consisted. And, and it was it's very simple. And that was, that was being there for Suleiman without, uh, without any, uh, any strings attached. That was just listening to him, being there with him, and just trying to listen and not reacting, not judging. And, and we learned a lot of this from my mother, who, who showed that kind of love that trickled down to the rest of us, to my father, my siblings, and myself. It was just being there for Suleiman unconditionally. Um, it was loving him in a way that he deserved to be loved. And that was as a member of our family, as a member of the family. And that's all. Mm-hmm. And that um, later when we talk about, you know, um, people with mental illness being institutionalized, I guess what you're saying now really touches on a point where it makes it quite clear that that is not possible in an institution. And so I guess that would rule out if we're looking at the 11 years and what your family did with the guidance of your mother to help Suleiman um, not just survive, but thrive in many ways to be able to learn a new language, to be able to become learned in Islam um, and to be able to share that knowledge um, with you and to share those practices skills of how do you pray how do you read Quran how do you do these things that help you that are helping you in your lifelong goals for him to be able to do that um, the magnitude of the care and support and love that your family has showered your brother with for 11 years is clear um, and it makes it really clear and the stark opposite that you, like you pointed out within 11 days in institutional care your brother ended up dead I think for most people from our listeners and I think anyone listening it would make it clear that being institutionalized is not really an option when you're when you have mental health or being institutionalized in a facility like the one where he was institutionalized without you know any proper specific um understanding of how to show that love and support uh to someone and maybe a complete utter lack and inability to do so um i don't i think this makes a huge case um like aside from all the legal issues and all the rest of the things that the province of ontario has you know um 
breached in their agreements and things that they're supposed to do um, with inmates and people coming into correctional facilities in Ontario as of 2013, which we'll get into later. It just, it, it doesn't, the picture that you've painted of the 11 years and what you did to help your brother thrive, I don't know if that's possible in an institution. And if that's the case, we need to really rethink um, how we are, what services we want to provide um, for people that are suffering with mental health. And maybe that means more services for the family, more support for the family to keep on supporting their loved ones at home and not institutionalizing them. Yasmin, yeah, you make a very great point and um, you remind me, your point reminds me of something else because stay here. Um, they took, in those 11 days, my family was not able to see Suleiman. And they took they took the most important support from him, and that was his family. We weren't able to see him, and still we don't have, we still do not have to this day answers as to why we weren't able to see him. They took his dignity away. It sounds like I they mean, took his my, lifeline away. They So my family tried to see him on multiple occasions, we weren't able to see and what were the, so the reasons? So the one support basically kept... Sorry, go, go ahead, go ahead. The one support that they had, they took, that he needed, they took that away. And to this day, as mean, we have not been told why we weren't able to see him. So you tried to one, go in person and then they just stopped you or you called to make an appointment and they told, like, what? I, could you just provide uh, our listeners and myself with, like, take us through that process. I'm sorry, I know this is painful, but what was that like? I know, I think it was you and your brother tried to visit him and your parents. Can you just, like, explain, elaborate a little bit? bit on what that process was like. Absolutely, as mean so weak. My parents and I tried to see Suleiman four times. My mom and dad three times physically and myself once. So all together four times. Within eleven we days. We went within eleven days. Within eleven days. Mm-hmm. So you physically and went there to the facility? Yes. And you were trying to My brother, away. yeah. Myself and my younger brother went to the facility, as did my parent on three other occasions. And we weren't able to see him. And when I went with my brother, with my younger brother, we articulated the staff that Suleiman had schizophrenia. So in addition to the fact that in those 11 days, they were, that in those 11 years um, that he was diagnosed, it was well documented as schizophrenia, but I articulated the staff at the Central East Correctional Center, which is located in Lindsay, Ontario, which is about two and a half hours from Ottawa, and they were aware that he had schizophrenia. Not, you know, not additional to the fact that it was documented and I articulated Yet Yasmin, within 11 days, he's dead. I'm asking, my family's still asking the same question today as we, were, as we asked on the night of December 15th when our, light, on our world turned upside down, when our beloved Suleiman was taken, from, taken away from us mercilessly. So just to, to keep on talking about this period, this painful period of him, these 11 days that he was held, in custody in this correctional facility in Lindsay. Um, Why was he there? How did he end up in this correctional facility in Lindsay? Was he serving time there as an inmate um, for an offense that he was convicted of? Um, So, yes, he was, let me be clear here. Um, He was, he was temporarily housed at Central East. he went, he was taken to custody as a result of an incident, and the audience can look into that, but he was temporarily housed, Yasmin. He was not serving a sentence. He was temporarily housed there. A couple of days before his death, Yasmin, he was supposed to be transferred to the Ontario Shore Centre for Mental Health. This is a facility in Ontario where individuals with mental illness, with mental illness are, are taken. A couple of days before his death, he was supposed to be transferred here. Right. And the only reason he wasn't Yasmin is because he was waiting for a bed. 
Yeah, so two the days whole, later, he's dead. Right. So the whole reason that he was, that he ended up in this correctional facility in Lindsay, instead of being at the Ontario Shore um, is it a Center for Mental Health, is that? Yes. It's because there were no beds available at the time. So, to, so when he was taken into custody, I mean, it became clear, became clear that Suleiman, you know, became clear that Suleiman should have not been in the jail, rather at a place always for individuals that need help with mental illness. So a couple of days before his death, it was ordered for Suleiman to be transferred from Ontario Shores, to, uh, from, from the jail, to the Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health. And the only reason he wasn't transferred was that he was waiting for a bed. It was just a matter of time. I'm so sorry. That's so heartbreaking to hear that that was the whole reason um, that he ended up there, and that was what led to his death, ultimately. Um, And why was it that, you know, while he was in Lindsay, in this facility, what was it that led the court system and the correctional system to change their decision and say, oh, no, we need to put him in the Ontario Shore Centre? What was it? Well, as I understand it, it became very clear that uh, Suleiman did not belong there. I mean, when, when documents are shown that he had schizophrenia. And what right? action and did I, you, I understand that you, that you did work on this behalf. What action did you take on his behalf to get the court system to agree to move him to a facility for individuals suffering with mental health illnesses? When we went to the jail, we articulated that my father did. And the other thing I need to keep in mind here for the audience, that jail specifically, the, uh, the Central East Correctional Center, according to the Ontario Ombudsman, this is the, uh, the agency of government that oversees like jail complaints uh, as one part of their mandate. That jail for the year 2015 to 2016 was the most complained jail in the entire province of Ontario. Right. So out of all the jail. jails in Ontario, there were the yes. most complaints filed against the Central East Correctional Center, yes. Center in Lindsay. Yes, 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 exactly. Wow. Okay. And he was supposed to be moved to the Ontario shore how many days after his passing? Sorry, you mean how many days before his passing? Yeah, how he was supposed to be moved to that uh, to the mental health facility, like yes. what, if he had remained alive, it would have been another two days thing. Is that right? No, he was no Yasmin. He was ordered to be removed a couple of days before his death. A, a couple of days before so was, his death. Yeah. And he was yeah, simply waiting for a bed. Okay, he was waiting for a bed, and so yes, okay, yes, I see. Yes. So that was a few days yes. before. So had there been a bed, yes, the whole yes. outcome, perhaps we wouldn't have been sitting here right now doing this interview and yeah. your family and everything would have been completely different and he would still be with us. Yeah. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Um, no problem. I'm so sorry to hear more. Everything I've read and researched up until this point has been so heartbreaking and that is even more heartbreaking. So just to just to go back a little bit, um, there's something really important that I want our listeners to hear. I think this is really, really important. This is a real advocacy part of this interview that is really important that I don't want to skip over simply because we um, had moved ahead with questions. Um, it's clear to anyone who reads about your brother's struggle that you and your family have, have gained a lot of wisdom and knowledge about how to support and care for those of us who are struggling with mal- mental illness. What advice would you give to family members of someone who has been diagnosed with mental illness? Simply, the, the, the most important advice is Listen and don't react. That's the most important advice. And second to that is 
you know, uh, the best way to support individuals that are suffering from mental illness is for them to have this, this important family support. The, the family support, Yasmin, is the difference between life and death. And, and it's so important for families to not react. And it's important for families to remember when someone's suffering from mental illness, they don't choose this illness. It's given to them. It's not that they're conscious of this. And if we're cognizant of that, that one aspect, then I'm telling you, I, I, I can assure you, that person's quality of life is increased tenfold. If we change, if we shift our perspective that way. As I said, what helps a man more than any professional help, more than any medical professional help, in those 11 years that he's diagnosed with mental illness, 11 years was the unconditional love that my mother gave to him to trickle down to the rest of us that supported him. And it's so crucial and it's so critical. So listening, mm-hmm. listening to people, yeah. listening to family members, and not reacting. What could be another takeaway? Um, another takeaway as we, is finding the proper support for folks that are suffering for, for mental illness. Besides family support, you know, working with professionals. And when I mean professionals, I'm talking about nurses, social workers, medical doctors, in terms of, you know, to help the, to help the individual suffering from mental illness. But don't stigmatize it. You know, some communities continue to struggle with mental illness about the stigma part. And, you know, mental illness should not be something that we should hide, but it should be something that we should openly talk about and find a way, you know, by us openly talking about it, it will make it easier for some of these individuals that are suffering from mental illness because at times individuals that are suffering from mental illness, what compounds their already difficult problem is that they feel that they're an internal prison. They can't talk about some of their illness. Mm. And we need to have more important conversations about the fact that if someone's suffering from mental illness, don't stigmatize, don't stigmatize them. That's another important takeaway. Don't so you can take, there's three takeaways you can take to you. Yes. Okay. One, family support. Don't react and listen. Two is being, you know, working with the, you know, appropriate professionals. That is the psychiatrists, medical doctors, uh, nurses, social workers within in terms of the programs, you know, for individuals with mental illness. And third, the Stigmatization is so important, not to stigmatize with individuals that are suffering from mental illness. Thank and you. we still have a ways to go in this area. Thank you so much for that. To continue. The time is presently 11.38. You're listening to ckut.ca, and we will resume the interview with Yusuf Akiri. You on going back now to the sequence of events that led up to your brother uh, being in custody in the correctional facility. So how did he first come into contact with police and law enforcement? And were there instances in prior to being sent to the facility in Lindsay where law enforcement acted in a way that was more understanding of mental illness? Or was it always the way that, was it always just a not really knowing how to act properly? Like, how was it? I know that there was an incident with neighbors. Was that the first time he came into contact with the police and law enforcement? And, and what was that like? Did the police know what to do when they arrived at the house or sure. the neighbor's house? That's a very important question, Yasmin, but I'd like to ask you another question in relation to that. How is it that, you know, when Suleiman, in terms of, like, you know, his experience in the hospital and, in you know, um, working in that system, how is it that other medical professionals or other individuals were able to treat him appropriately. Yet, when he is in contact with the guards, 
in Lindsay, he's dead. Right. So that's what how, I was trying that to. That's what I was trying to figure out if, in previous instances, if they had treated him with more respect, and you know, if they or if it had always been abusive, and then this was just sort of like the escalation of that. So. This, what you're telling me, I just want to be clear. So there was a stark difference between whatever happened and his interactions with law enforcement individuals prior to being sent to Lindsay. Is that correct? Absolutely. But the other thing to keep in mind, too, Yasmin, is that we still don't have a lot of the, the questions that you and I are asking right now. Right. I mean, we still have the same questions as we still have the same questions um, and as we had on December 15, 2016. Why am I still having the same conversation with you, Yasmin, and asking you know, individuals that are responsible for his death a year and a half after his death, mm-hmm. more than a year and a half after his death. Seasons have passed, months have gone, anniversaries have been celebrated. Yet my family continues to suffer, suffer, suffering in a way that no one deserves to suffer. My brother went to Lindsay and went to Lindsay healthy. Instead, he's, we were giving his body in a body bag, and we were giving his, we were, we were given, given him in a body bag. That's unbelievable and unjustifiable and. As I understand, after your brother's passing, and when you did receive his body, what did your family find? Well, you know, I mean, I, it's probably one of the most difficult things to talk about, but I'll, I'll try my best to talk to you about this. I'm so sorry um, if you feel like it's too personal or too painful. No, no, it's, it's important to talk about this. And when we got his body, you know, there was bruises throughout his body, throughout his body, like his hands, his leg, or um, his... his or so, you know, he, but the thing that stands out the most, though, there was a huge gash on his forehead. These were the last few minutes of his life. And what what gave us even more heart, what confirmed our own difficulty was after the coroner's report that identified, according to the coroner's office, the report identified 50 bruises on his body. A significant number of these bruises, uh, Yasmin, were considered, as they called it, blunt impact trauma. How is it that a man who's suffering from a known mental illness, both whose hands and his legs are tied, is pepper sprayed twice, and there's almost 20 guards, upwards of 20 guards involved, has force applied in him, and is dead. What requires 20 guards to apply this kind of force on a defenseless human being? Mm. I asked that question. I've been asking that question to my family since December 15th. And to this day, we continue to be not given any answers. Right. And it is for this reason that we will continue to fight. And it's for this reason that we do not want this to happen to someone else. We don't want another mother to bury their child or another father to be to be going through constant heartaches every day or another brother to not know what happened to their beautiful sibling or another nephew who celebrates their birthday not knowing what happened to, to their uncle. We don't want this to happen. We don't want this to happen to another silly man. And yeah. a great injustice was created against a Canadian man who was killed under government care. And can you tell our listeners, um, like, the condition, what your family... First, how long your family had to wait for the coroner's report? After you found... After you, you know, saw your brother's body, how many months, how long did it take to, you know, for the coroner's report to come out? And then what... You've, you've, you've mentioned some of the things that you found out in the coroner's report, that there were 20 guard, or approximately 20 guards there um, in the last minutes of his life. And you've also mentioned there were 50, um, over 50 different 
marks on his body and a lot of them blunt impact. And can you also so let us know how many months it took? Yes, yes. So talking about, I think about seven months for us to get the coroner's report um, um, with regards to the report. But um, it took another 11 months. It took altogether almost a year for the police, for the police who investigated these guards to send my family an email saying that there are no grounds for charges. Even though there's a video, and as I understand, there's, they're saying they've decided there's no grounds for charges, although there's this evidence that was on his body, and there's also, as I understand, video footage of the last minutes a, of your brother's life. Correct, yes. I mean, so there's a video that Suleiman is being walked um, in the hallway um, um, uh, by guards, but we, my family, myself, and my family, nor our lawyers have seen that video. We have not been privy to that video. And what are the reasons that, is it the police services or who is preventing you from seeing that video? Who is the entity? So we, we have not been able to see the video when we requested multiple times. Right. And with respect to the police, I mean, um, we still have not seen the entire police report. We've, we've, we've only seen a partial uh, report of the police. They have not given us the entire report. Oh, really? So it's just a partial report? We only got partial access to the police report. And what about your lawyers? Have they had more access or the same? No, 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 no. no. Our lawyers have had partial access to the police report. And what are the reasons exactly. that the police are stating? We still have not been given... We still have not been given reason as to why we have not gotten the entire report. And the only reason we got the report was that initially when they decided not to press charges, we applied for the report and they denied. The police report, just to be clear, is different from the coroner's report. The police denied our request for that report. And only after the Information Privacy Commissioner got involved, the police relent and gave us partial access of the report. Okay. Can you hold on a second? Just yeah. hold one second. Sorry about that. No problem at all. So there's a coroner's yeah, report me. that you've had access yeah. to. There's a police report that you've only been given partial access to. And there's a video that you haven't been any, given any access to. Correct. And so is your family, um, and, they, and you've been told that there's no, they've been, the police services have decided that I think it's the Kawartha Police Services. Is that correct? Yeah, Kawartha Lakes Police Service. Yeah. Right. They've yeah. they've determined that there are no grounds to press charges, despite all of this evidence and some of it that's been withheld. Um, so, what are what are the actions that your family is taking um, to deal with so, these like these terrible outcomes of? Um, the Kawartha Lake Police Services, and the province. So just like any family would do, Yasmin, we're going to continue to fight with dignity and, you know, fight with, uh, you know, with, with finitelessness in terms of, you know, seeking accountability and transparency. And, you know, um, and when the police announced that they were, uh, they were not pressing charges and the coroner's office uh, promptly announced an inquest shortly after that decision that an inquest would happen to Suleiman's death. So right now, 
we're waiting for the inquest to happen. You know, um, but but in addition to that, and we can talk more about this further is, um, you know, while um, we wait for the inquest to happen, we have a movement that continues to ask for answers. And, and you know, the family's position is, you know, we want, um, you know, we want another police service to do another investigation. It's important for another police service to do another investigation. I, I still do not know, you know, I still have not myself or near my family or lawyers or our lawyers been given, you know, about an explanation as to why there are no grounds for charges. Mm-hmm. And has this SIU, the Special Investigations Unit, um, taken any action regarding any of this? Is that is that an avenue that you're? Do you think you'll put a complaint into them, or perhaps your lawyers have already? So the SIU, uh, um, the the as I understand, the SIU investigates, you know, um, actions uh, involving the police. Whereas this act, this situation, as me involves actions that involve the guards. Okay, so right. So that's this a was distinction. The, the local police jurisdiction. Yes. Okay, and um, thank you so much for clarifying that. So, is there? I know that in 2013, um, Christina John, a woman who suffered from mental illness, addictions, and cancer, filed an application with the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario. Um, she alleged um, that she was forced into segregation for over 210 days by the Ottawa Carleton Detention Center because of her mental health disabilities. And um, in its settlement with um, Christina John, the Ontario provincial government agreed to three changes. So, and this was 2013, just to review for our listeners, the three changes the province of Ontario um, agreed to in this settlement with John were, number one, a prohibition of segregation for inmates with mental health issues, except in cases where alternatives would cause undue hardship. Number two, mental health screening for all inmates upon admission and an ongoing basis. Number three, to more accurately document, review, and report on the use of segregation. So if my question to you in light of this is, if the Ontario government had honored and upheld its responsibilities under this 2013 settlement agreement, do you think your brother would still be alive? Absolutely. And if my, if my brother, I go further to that, if my brother was treated the way he should have been treated or any human being should be treated in this province, he would have been alive. Mm. And the Ontario Human Rights Commission has stated that your brother, Suleiman Fakiri, that his death highlights a larger issue, issue across Ontario. And in fact, in data um, from August 2016, um, 60, it has been documented that 64 prisoners um, with documented mental health concerns were being held in segregation for periods longer than 30 days across the province. Of those, only 15 had treatment plans. Are you taking action against the province of Ontario as part of an action with the Ontario Human Rights Commission or independently of the Human Rights Commission? So right now, Yasmin, we haven't thought in that area. We're focusing primarily right now, and my family is for us to focus on, you know, getting justice for my brother and the the way our justice looks like and our focus is right now, you know, to ask for accountability and transparency, and that's through, you know, criminal charges. Mm-hmm. So and so, you're pursuing a, you're going the criminal 
that's so that's what I was curious if you were trying to do a civil suit or a criminal suit or both. Um, so right now we, my family is, um, is you know focusing on getting justice from Suleiman, and and the way that looks like is asking for accountability and transparency. So we have not uh, looked into the civil suit. And I know that you did make a statement. I think I believe it was with the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Um, yes. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, so I spoke in front of the Ontario Human Rights Commission and was there reiterating about Sunny Man's story. You know, why I talked about his story and just reiterated what I said to you earlier in our uh, interview is that like we don't. The reason we're speaking out as a family is for this to not happen to someone else. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you talked about the the movement, the Justice for Sali movement. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, and I, I mean, I see from just looking at the Facebook page that there's not just posts about your brother. Um, there's also posts about um, Abdurrahman Abdi, who was also had mental health issues and was also um, killed in a police shooting. Um two years ago, um, and yes. there's many other people. Um, the lists go on and on of the number and the individuals who have been either killed, the n- number of individuals who suffer and struggle every day with mental health illnesses and have been either killed by the police or killed while they have been inside, like your brother, um, Sali. And so I just wanted to know if you could... Give us, our listeners, and give us here at Prison Radio Show a bit of a, an overview of how the movement came into being, what your role is within it, and what ultimately your goal is, what your, what the, everyone that's involved in Justice for Soli is doing this for. So, you know, after Suleiman's death, my family made a conscious decision, and it was a decision made by all of us that we needed to, you know, we need to speak out. We didn't want this to happen to someone else. And what I did uh, with a couple of friends, um, uh, we started the Justice for Suleiman movement. And 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 the the work that we've that the movement has done has been um, you know um, quite um, important. And you know, thankfully, we've had a great um, a level of support from individuals uh, from all different perspectives and. Um, you know, some of the work that we've done is we've we've held we've held a few vigils. Uh, we've done a speaking tour across Ontario and parts of Quebec, and uh, we've also you know have uh, monthly press releases. We've spoken with different community leaders. You know, um, and the movement. And, you know, it's not just uh, myself. There's there's several others. My role in the movement is, you know, um, as one of the members and having the honor of being Suleiman's brother. Um, but there's many other individuals that play just as important and if not more important role in the movement. Um, and uh, we're, we're, the main goal of this movement, you know, is to uh, seek accountability and transparency for not just Suleiman, but that have uh, take, have been taken away mercilessly. And, um, you know, we, we make sure uh, to point out, you know, not just about Suleiman's story, but speak about other stories and, you know, in our speaking tour, we spoke about Justin Saint-Amour, a young man um, who had schizophrenia that um, died in the Ottawa Carlton Detention Center uh, eight days before Suleiman. Another man by the name of Cass Geddes, who died 
who also had schizophrenia, died two months after Suleiman's death uh, in the Ottawa Carlton Detention Center. Another man by the name of Moses Amek Beaver and was found dead in the Thunder Bay Jail, a First Nations man who suffered from bipolar disorder. Um, you know, we talk about their stories. We talk about the story of Abdurrahman, um, um, Abdurrahman um, um, Hassan, uh, um, who uh, actually died in the Lindsay Jail for a year and a half before Suleiman's death. He was suffering from bipolar disorder. Uh, you know, so we, we, we talk about all these other stories because these stories are very important and uh, we need to... We need to speak up with, uh, uh, you know, these, uh, for these stories. I mean, that has happened, and we will continue to speak out. And uh, this movement, thankfully, has been able to, to do that. And um, we're very honored and grateful for many opportunities such as this, speaking with yourself and other uh, media outlets. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And, I mean, the list just goes on and on. I know in Newfoundland there were also recently in July um, another... Uh, there's, you know, f- well, four inmates have died in custody there over the past year. There was Chris Sutton, um, and there were also Sky Martin and Samantha Percy, um, all who had uh, mental health uh, illnesses and who all died in custody. So the list just get- goes on and on, and not just in Ontario. I know we've been talking mostly about um, the situation in Ontario, but this is going on all over the country, in fact, all over the world. It's a systematic issue, you have me. It's yes. a systematic issue. Yes. And um, how can our listeners get involved in this um, Justice for Sully movement? What can they do um, to make a difference? How can they help you and the others that have started this movement, uh, you know, reach the goals? And what can people do? And are there particular issues? So I know on the Justice for Sully page, there's a lot of information about abolishing solitary confinement um, because solitary confinement, um, you know, Juan, Juan Mendez, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, has stated that 15 days of solitary confinement is regarded as torture. And we know Canada has signed on to treaties that prevent torture. So there's that, but also solitary confinement at all for anyone that has mental health um, should not be put in segregation. I know it seems like that's one issue that's highlighted. Um, are there other particular angles or things that people can be working on? Um, are there specific fundraising campaigns that we can guide our listeners to? Yes, great, great, uh, you know, uh, great question. I mean, um, there, there's several ways that you know our list, uh, the listeners can help. Um, the the you know the first way um, you know the most simple way is you know um, if the listeners are able to um, you know uh, write on their social media uh, a couple of sentences about Suleiman and getting individuals to follow us follow our Facebook page we also have a website called, uh, called justiceforsully.com so that's the first um, thing they can do is they could just comment about the story and make a statement on their social media for folks to follow. Uh, you know, to follow the story. Another way they can help us is, um, you know, we're still looking for volunteers to help us. Some of the, you know, um, some of our movement because we have a social media team. We also have um, uh, a fundraising team. Uh, we also have a campaign team. We also have um, a rally team. So um, that's one way if they want to volunteer and they could come to our Facebook page and message uh, the group and, and we'd be happy to uh, you know, get any of their time because they don't have to physically be located where we are in Ontario. 
rather you know uh, the work they can do from whichever respective vocation they are and that, those are the first couple of ways um, um, another way they can assist our movement um, as of right now we're in the process of trying to raise uh, $50,000 to cover legal costs so um, I can give you the link to our website to our uh, a fundraiser page and if folks if they're able to uh, assist us whether it's $10 uh, you know, twenty dollars, fifty dollars, or a hundred dollars, whatever they can assist, they could uh, go to our uh, fun, um, our fundraiser page, which is Launch Good, and donate to our campaign. So those are some of the ways that they can assist um, in our movement. Great, and so that's you said Launch Good. Launch Good, yes. And then when they get to that page, do they just type in Justice for Sali, or how do they find it? If they, if they, um, what I can do, if um, I can give um, the movement, sorry, your um, uh, the website, uh, your the link, which is launchgood.com. Okay. And uh, they could, and if they type in Justice Rosali, they'll be able to find our page. Great, and we'll post all of these um, for our listeners. Will we be posting all of the websites um, that Yusuf has mentioned um, regarding the Justice for Sully movement and the Launch for Good and the Facebook and Twitter, um, the Twitter handle and the Facebook page, all on our um, Prison Radio Show um, WordPress page and our Twitter. So all of that stuff will be there. Um, there'll be a link to it on CKUT uh, under Excellent. the Prison Radio Show. Um, so and just to just to let you know. Um, I'm so sorry for all that you and your family have lost and been through and continue to go through. I commend uh, and admire the work that you and your family and the others involved in the Justice for Sully movement are tirelessly engaged in, despite how immensely difficult and painful um, it must be um, due 